This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. We are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know, this week featuring Chedva Kleinhandler, such an intelligent, delightful person. Chedva Kleinhandler is a rising entrepreneur on the Israeli tech scene, and she's also very unique in that she is a Haredi woman, ultra-Orthodox woman, for lack of a better term. I don't love labels, but they do serve a function, and she certainly fits in that category. Chedva is very unique and has a brilliant career already behind her and certainly ahead of her as the CEO and co-founder of Emerge, which is a platform that services Fortune 500 companies and high growth companies to enhance their internal work as teams offer unique access to professional development as well as anonymized and aggregated data for companies to use in bettering themselves and their own corporate cultures. Chedva was on a whirlwind worldwide tour. She had been in San Francisco, then New York, and of course she lives in Israel, so we were able to catch her at one of her stops along the way, and I'm very grateful that we had the opportunity to do so. Meanwhile, as always, follow us on social media at Jews You Should Know, spelled out fully on Instagram and Facebook, Jews You Should Know with the letter U on Twitter. Reach out via email for any comments or questions or to inquire about speaking engagements. Jews You Should Know at gmail.com. Subscribe wherever you're listening, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify. And please spread the word to others to have them subscribe as well. And now to our conversation with Emerge CEO and Haredi entrepreneur Chedva Kleinhandler. We are here with Chedva Kleinhandler, the co-founder and CEO of Emerge, which we will hear all about today. And Chedva is coming to us from New York, via San Francisco, via Israel. So a world traveler. How are you, Chedva? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. And uh, I want to hear all about your extensive travels, your company, and uh, so much more. But as we always do, we want to start at the very beginning and uh, take us back, I'm assuming, to the land of Israel, uh, but to wherever you were born and where and how were you raised? Oh, so I was actually born in New York ah. um, to an Israeli family. Uh, my mom is Israeli, but she, she grew up in, uh, in Brooklyn and Flatbush. Um, and so I was born in New York. We moved back to Israel when I was four or five uh, to B'nai Brak. Uh, I was raised in, um, I think, very standard kind of Anglo-Israeli, Yiddish, uh, but not too Hasidish <laughs> kind of way. Uh, I went to uh, uh, Haredi schools uh, in, in Tel Aviv, uh, Sharansky, which is a, a high school that's been around from before independence. My grandmother uh, went there. Um, the first of five amazing siblings. 
would spend every summer in Flatbush by my, by my grandparents. Um, so very kind of standard, I think, for, for, for me. Uh, but then we did, uh, we did grow up in a very kind of intellectual household as well. So we did uh, read classic books. There were a lot of philosophical kind of debates, uh, you know, uh, alongside uh, speaking a lot about kind of Hasidic heritage and Torah and stuff like that. Amazing. So where were your, your parents? You said your mother was really American and your father was Israeli? Yeah, so, so my mom uh, was Israeli, but then uh, when she was nine, they moved to Flatbush, uh, New York. Uh, and uh, my dad uh, was uh, Israeli. He grew up in Nebrak. His family actually came from Pleshburg, from Bratislava. He's, he's uh, an Einikal, he's a, a, a grandson of the Khatam Sofer, so they came straight uh, you know, right in the middle of the Holocaust, actually. And his, his father's, my grandfather's family has been in Israel actually for hundreds of years, had uh, etrogim orchards for over a century. Um, what was the name of those orchards? Etrogei Eretz Israel, but everybody know, know, knew them just by the name, of, by our last name, which is Ludmir. Okay. I don't know that I've so, ever used a Ludmir etrog before, but uh, <laughs> who knows? So, so yeah, so they actually did a lot of exports to, to the U.S. So they were very Israeli in a lot of ways, but on the other hand, kind of our the crowd that we mixed with and like my mother's friends were very Anglo. So people who came to Israel from anywhere between the U.S., England, Belgium, etc. Was that common uh, to have a lot of Anglos in B'nai Brock at that time? Uh, I think so. I think so. And I think a lot of times, you know, they were missing their family. So they were kind of hanging out together. Right, right. And what did your parents actually do? You said they were very intellectual. What was their professions and, and, and what, was their, what were they interested in? So this is actually interesting. My mother was a homemaker until like 16 years ago. So in my childhood, she was a homemaker. Um, and my, my father was very involved in the family business, which was the Tolgame game orchards and also some real estate. Um, so I grew up with a very hardworking daddy. He would wake up every morning at 5 a.m. Uh, to go to the orchards. In the summers, we wouldn't see him at all. Uh, and my mother actually went back to school uh, when I was um, around 16, uh, when she had my, my youngest sister. And she eventually uh, started the first center in the world that treats uh, sexual trauma survivors in the Haredi um, in the Haredi world she now has a few centers in Israel already wow and, she interviewed uh, her yeah she, she's amazing she's a real powerhouse uh, and it all started just because she wanted to learn how to do marriage counseling uh, but she kind of grew into it oh my goodness how did she get connected to, to doing sexual trauma work did she she was helping people and realized that was kind of a need so my always helping people, we always had uh, not only a lot of guests, but also a lot of people came to them for advice, whether it was with their marriage or with anything else. And at some point, my mom went to, to study marriage counseling and they told her, listen, you really have something you should do. You should get like a real uh, certificate, a real uh, degree. And she went to study social work and uh, she, you know, she somehow got into interning in Ichilov, which is a large hospital in Tel Aviv, in the mental health department, which was very hard. And her mentor there 
is the one who started the, the sexual trauma unit. And then very soon after she was just an, an intern, uh, she continued on uh, volunteering there. Uh, and once they had a job open up, she, she started the, the, the unit for Haredi people because there was no one there who had the background and, you know, the cultural background to even understand um, people who come from a religious background and different kind of references. And a few years after that, she joined the nonprofit that she's now with and, and they started those centers uh, in Bnei Brak and now um, uh, also elsewhere in, in Israel. Incredible. So you mentioned that you grew up also in an intellectual home. What do you mean by that? And what uh, what were some of the early maybe books that were influential for you? And how was that for you? So, yeah, so, so it wasn't something that was official, but um, we were always reading a lot of books and discussing them. Anything from, you know, the classics, you know, I just saw the little women. <laughs> so, so that was a big book for me. Uh, so any, anywhere, anything from the classics uh, to history books to then on, on the other hand, you know, Musal and Hasidut books. Um, and uh, Shabbat dinners were very much about not only, you know, having uh, fun family time, and singing, singing Zmilot, but also having a real debate whether it was the vault that one of my brothers or me were saying, we were really kind of dissecting everything. And on the other hand, we were, had a lot, a lot of like talk about like the pride of, and legacy of like our forefathers. My dad al- always was bringing up our, you know, our uh, great grandfathers, whether it's the Khatam Sefel or whether it's, uh, you know, Baratania and stuff like that. It was a very big thing to, to kind of um, be, make sure that we kind of try to continue the legacy or at least uh, not put it to shame. Did you feel that you were unique in terms of the kinds of things you were interested uh, in and learning among your friends? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think I went first to, um, uh, in first and, and second grade, I went to the Gerer School in, in Nebrak, uh, and there I was definitely unique. And then I moved to Beit Yeled, which was uh, kind of a more uh, uh, mixed, like both Hasidish and Litvish, and like a lot of different, you know, kind of Haredi uh, girls in, in Tel Aviv. Um, and they're like, um, I wasn't unique in terms of my family because there were a lot of Anglo families and stuff like that. But in terms of interests, uh, definitely I was really very much a bookworm, uh, very interested in <laughs> philosophical and intellectual uh, debate where other girls at that age were maybe were interested in just playing. Uh, but also um, I, at that age, uh, had other things that were unique. I, I, I got alopecia. Uh, which is an autoimmune disease um, that makes your body reject your hair when I was uh, seven. So Oi. I had a, I, I don't know which part was was unique and, and you know what's the chicken and what's the egg, but I was uh, I very much stood out uh, and had to deal with things that usually girls that age didn't have to. So I'm not sure maybe that also led to me like being more of a bookworm and, and more of an introvert at that age. Absolutely. How, how did the alopecia affect you? Because I can imagine that must have created a huge sense of shame or social stigma. Yeah, uh, definitely. I think especially in our society where like, you know, there's a lot of amazing things, but also uniqueness and being, being different aren't always <laughs> encouraged. Right. Um, and, and also it's just kind of the trauma and, and, and you know, 
that's pretty uh, staggering. Uh, so definitely had a lot of impact. Uh, I had to deal with uh, girls that age not being very kind, both in Nebrak and also in my school. So it had a lot of impact. But I have to say that overall, I think, uh, when I think about it now, I think about it as, as one of the things that made me who I am, uh, including being more empathetic to other people and being able to kind of zoom out when I'm inside situations and kind of see how people are reacting, how people are thinking, who's there for you and who's kind of, you know, um, and who's who's kind of playing uh, uh, an angle. Uh, but it was definitely not an easy uh, thing to go through as a, as a child. And I'm sure for my parents as well, it wasn't easy. They were very young. I was their first child. They had me, my mom had me when she was, you know, 19. So nowadays as a mother, <laughs> I have a lot of empathy yeah. towards them as well. Right. Absolutely. So obviously you got through that and you went on, as you said, to high school and where did you want to go from there? Did you have a pretty conventional Haredi mentality of just wanting to get married young or marry, you know, someone who would be studying Torah? What was your thinking as you were growing as a teenager and young adult? Yeah, that that's actually funny because I grew up with two uh, very kind of opposing uh, feelings. On the one hand, uh, my parents and my grandparents always gave me this feeling that I could do anything I wanted, uh, that I was talented, that I could conquer the world. Really, that was like a very strong um, uh, feeling that I got from them throughout my childhood. On the other hand, uh, in my entire extended family, I only had one aunt who worked outside the home. Uh, and so uh, when I was having the conversation with my parents before we started, you know, with Shidduchim and like kind of, okay, so what, are you, what do you want to do with your life? And I said like very, in a very self-convinced way that I want to have a career. I had no idea what, but I'm going to have a career. They said, listen, it's very nice. We think you're very talented. Uh, we, we do think you could do anything, but you're not used to it. You will work one week and you'll come back home crying. You know, they, they were very worried for me. Um, and uh, and really, I, I had this self-conviction that I wanted to do something that was meaningful to me beyond, you know, just uh, just uh, bringing home, you know, uh, the salary. Uh, but I didn't know what it was. I knew that I was very passionate about writing. I was always a writer, uh, but I didn't know if that's what I wanted to do, or even if I did, uh, how do you go about it? Um, and when I did uh, meet uh, uh, my husband, who was the first boy that I that I dated, actually, it was pretty early. I was 18 and a half. Uh, we had uh, three dates. Um, I don't know how I was that decisive. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I, I actually admire the 18-year-old that I was. Uh, much less decisive nowadays. Uh, but we had three dates. And then the third date, I brought up, you know, I'm going to have a career. I don't know what in, but I need to know that we're on the same page. And, you know, thank goodness uh, he has a very, very strong woman for a mother. And he didn't even think about it as something, you know, uh, that that could, you know, he, he that could be negative he really he was immediately on the same page i'm not sure if he knew what he was putting you know bringing himself into but he was <laughs> it was uh immediately on the same page and then you know it was like him like conversations with your parents so, do you want to see him again and i was like what do you mean we're getting engaged tomorrow so within a week within less than a week within three dates uh we got engaged it was because we wanted to to get engaged before Tishat <laughs> right. um, 
and that was uh, 15 years ago. Beautiful. And what did you see in him that you so quickly felt like this was the one? So it's interesting because we, I, I, I went into dates with him because uh, we said, okay, we need to, it was after a few months of me being read Shidduch and, um, and he was very, very different for me in, in every way possible, uh, kind of family background and interests and personality, but we kept hearing like really, really great things. And, and we said, okay, so we have to start, you know, somewhere and this probably not to be a but we have to date your, your first, you know, first guy that you date. Um, and then immediately we had a very weird date uh, in my parents' kitchen because my parents, again, were very young and very protective. They didn't want us to go to a hotel lobby or something like that. And immediately we just started laughing. Uh, I loved his sense of humor. Uh, his kindness really shone through. And I, I really think if, someone, if something defines me or my husband uh, to this day, is he, he's the most kind. He's the, really the kindest person. I know uh, on the planet, and we just had a really good time, even though our parents were on the other uh, side of the door. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> uh, so then immediately, the uh, I think the day the day after that, uh, we we met again in my grandparents' dining room. Again, my parents were very protective, um, and we had we just had a, a really great time, and, and immediately fell in love. Uh, and um, really, I think. It was the kindness, the humor, the fact that we immediately could laugh about things, even though we had uh, very little uh, kind of cultural references in common. Uh, he's very, very Israeli, grew up in Tel Aviv, like a very different uh, kind of uh, uh, background, you know, in the realm of the Haredi world, of course. Um, but, uh, but that humor and that kindness, I think, are, are, are still the things that I, that I most admire in him. Beautiful. So you got married, and I assumed he went to, he was still studying in yeshiva at the time? Yeah, so he studied in yeshiva for a year. Uh, I was, uh, you know, I went from being very adamant in my first years in high school that I want a husband that will study uh, his whole life to actually uh, going back to, to thinking about, do I really want that? And, and I really valued in my, in my father and in my grandfather and my family that they were combining Torah and working amazingly, like really beautifully. And I really admire that because I think it's very hard. So Mayor, after a year in Yeshiva, to work with my father on real estate and on the orchards. And then I was trying to understand what it is, you know, I'm speaking so much about my career, what it is that I want to do. So first order of business was just to get my SATs and my standardized tests because in, in our school, they didn't do them. They didn't want us to go to higher education. So... Going from there, what did you want to start studying and what did you want to start doing to get into a career? Yeah, so it was a very, very unusual path because I had no idea. I thought I wanted to go and study social work like my mother who was still uh, just finalizing her, her studies um, because also I was always a good listener and I was really, really liked people and stuff like that. Uh, and then they didn't want to even get my... my um, my application because I wasn't 20 yet and apparently uh, in some fields that have to do with psychology you know except people who are under 20 which looking back you know makes sense so I wrote them <laughs> a pretty long letter saying how I was really familiar with the 
subject matter anyhow because I was helping my mother who was used to, to like studying in English and she was doing her studies in Hebrew. So I was helping her out with translating a lot of the articles that she had to read, etc. So then they accepted me, but that made me think and I understood that I, I don't really want to do that. And it would be very, very hard for me to, you know, to, to treat people and come home and kind of separate that and be able to carry on with my, my own personal life. So looking back at my interests, I thought, hey, what do I love to do? First and foremost thing for me, as I said, was I was a huge bookworm and I loved to write. So I said, hey, actually, if I'll be a translator, if I'll translate books from English to Hebrew, then I get to read all day and I get to write all day. And that's what I did. I, I, I went to study for a diploma in Beit Barrel, in a college called Beit Barrel, uh, for tra translation and editing. Um, it was really formative studying translation, which I loved. It was a very, very, very uh, diverse group. We were around 20 people. Most of them were above 40 years old. I was 20. And they came from very various like backgrounds, uh, both geographically inside Israel, but also people came there as their second or third career. So people who were teachers, people who were high-tech professionals, people who were from a kibbutz, uh, from, from the city. So it was a really formative uh, experience for me also in like learning how, how different people thought and getting to actually be friends with people from very different backgrounds. Uh, and I loved it. While I was doing that, I also had my son, who's now 13, um, Hanoch. And then right after that, I started interning for one of my professors and I was a translator for three years from books, fiction and nonfiction, but also TV subtitles, uh, which was an interesting topic to bring <laughs> to my neighborhood family. Um, and uh, I did that until around 2008 or 2009, until the big kind of uh, economic crisis where there was much less work to do. And that affected translations as well? Yeah, because uh, publishing houses in, in Israel, most of the work that they do is translating, is really buying and translating the rights from American, mostly, but also European books. There's not a lot of volume of Israeli original works being published. So it's really affected uh, the publishers in Israel as well. And I was still pretty new. There's a lot of competition when it comes to, you know, to English to, to, to Hebrew translators. It's not, you know, an esoteric uh, language. And so I found a lot of time on, on my hands. And on the same time, I was very active online in the blogging community. I had, I had a few different blogs at any given moment. I was very active on Twitter and already by then also on Facebook. And one of my blogs that I started just around that time was an interior design blog, very small, like nothing major, just a place for me to kind of gather my inspiration because Pinterest and Instagram didn't exist yet. Uh, but that was start starting to take off. I had, you know, I didn't have millions of readers, but the, the thousands that I did have were the editors in chief of uh, like very big American publications like El Decor, House Beautiful. Uh, Domino, at the time, uh, I had like very, very prominent American interior designers following me, and it started to gain traction. My work, you know, as a translator was winding down. At one point, I saw a post on Facebook from a friend of a friend who was an editor-in-chief of a magazine in Israel, and she said, hey, we're expanding the magazine to also include 
uh, lifestyle and interior design. We're looking for someone to write for us. And I kind of uh, somehow gathered the courage and sent her the link to my blog. And that was a very pivotal moment for me. Were you always interested in interior design? Because it's very different than translation and very different than classics and psychology. <laughs> yeah, and it's also very, very different from what I do nowadays. Uh, so I didn't think I was always uh, interested in interior design. It really started from us preparing to move to our house and me looking for stuff online and not finding much because even the largest magazine website by then, but they were like kind of static land page, landing pages without a lot of content. And then I landed in like a world, which was a very, a very new world of, of interior design bloggers. Uh, but I'm, a, I'm very much a geek on anything that I'm interested in. And so once I got interested in that, I bought a ton of books and I would scroll endlessly, you know, in the internet reading about things and, and I really educated myself. Uh, but then it was interesting because after I did start writing for magazines, I interviewed uh, someone who was the architect for my parents when I grew up, when they like read kitchen and he actually reminded me that as an 11 year old I would sit with him for hours drawing imaginative blueprints for houses that didn't exist <laughs> so maybe I was interested and I forgot it uh, but I'm, I'm really it's more about like I have a lot of interests and, and I, I'm really a huge geek so whatever I'm interested in even when I went and, and you know uh, did like a sewing course like just so I know how to to do like still costumes, like print costumes for my son, I'll, I'll be a huge geek about it and I'll like read a lot about it and really immerse myself in whatever it is. That's awesome. So you started writing for this interior design magazine and yeah. where, where did that go? So I started writing for them. Very soon they, they would send me on press conferences and more and more uh, magazine editors approached me and I found myself writing and many of them at the same time while doing that, like actually because of doing that, I understood that my small blog does have a unique point of view and that it's not just me like musing about whatever I want to do with my kitchen or with my couch, but I'm actually kind of kind of marrying the world of like American and Israeli design and, and Dafka because I'm not an interior designer, not, not trying to, to pose as, as an expert. I have a very different perspective that's very human. It's very like about how do you feel when you live in that space? And I understood that, and I, I, I invested some money in, uh, in building my blog that was until then on Typepad, you know, just like a kind of like a very run-of-the-mill like blogging platform. So I, I invested in, in like taking it into its own domain, building like a very well-designed, you know, by, by 2011 standards right, uh, right. Uh, blog in both Hebrew and in English. Hanit, who's my CTO today and my co-founder, was the, the, the developer who, who built it for me. And the funny thing was, uh, as I was investing more in that and really kind of recognizing that it was more than just a hobby uh, and approaching advertisers and really starting to treat it as a business, more and more people came to me, uh, either brands or independent interior designers, home decor uh, designers came to me and said, hey, we know that our clients or our you know, potential clients are online. By that point, you know, Facebook, Twitter, all of that, we didn't have Instagram and Pinterest yet. Uh, Facebook was just about to start with their business pages. Uh, so we know that our clients, our potential clients are out there. We have no idea how to approach them there. Uh, 
Uh, so this is, this is early days, this is like 2009, 2010. Um, can you help us? And in the beginning, I would just like consult them for free, but then I really understood that there's a business there. And while writing for magazines uh, was really fun, it's like, it's very hard to make money that way. So I continued on like writing a little bit uh, and of course writing for my blog. But what I actually made the focus of my business was really helping brands and designers to get to larger audiences, first in Israel, but also then in the US and the UK through content and marketing and things that are now very obvious, like influencers and bloggers, but were then like kind of the secret that I was able to crack because I knew as a blogger, what's interesting to me, what would make me write about somebody. So I did that. I started teaching a lot to also to business owners in the lifestyle world or to their employees that they would send to me how to use social media and content. And then, you know, when Instagram and Pinterest uh, came onto the scene, how to use uh, visual social media. It was really, really fun. Uh, and I was also being approached by larger companies like House, do like different content collaborations with them at the same time. So it was really the whole business from uh, around 2009 to the end of 2015. It was called Rooms and Words. Uh, that's the name of the blogs also. Uh, and it was all around content marketing in the lifestyle uh, world, starting from design, but then also going into fashion, food, travel, and stuff like that. So yeah, so, so that's what I did from 2009 to 2015. I was very happy, especially uh, 2014, 15 were very strong years. I ended up already hiring some freelancers to help me. Uh, did a lot of teaching, which I really love. But then I found myself around, exactly around that time when, when you know, started to be being successful. Also reading a lot about tech, just it began just because like how much can you read about the same articles about interior design and social media it gets old but also i was very very passionate about helping people with their careers i think you know i was it really resonated with me i really identified with the needs because when i started my first business as a translator i was 21 i had a six months old and i had no experience, uh, no network whatsoever, uh, had a lot of role models personally and, you know, spiritually around me, but not, not many when it came to, to starting your own business that's not, you know, real estate or diamonds. <laughs> uh, so, I, so I found myself, you know, in those early days, really kind of seeking out individuals who I could learn from, I could like run quick questions by then, like, what do you do when a client doesn't pay? Like, uh, what, how do you promote yourself when there's so much competition, stuff like that. And for me, funnily enough, a lot of those people were women who I was interacting with online on, on mommy groups on mommy forums, even before huh. Facebook. Um, because at some point I understood that we are, we share the same stage in our lives personally. Like they're also newlyweds. They also just had their first baby, but professionally, they're, first of all, all of them were secular. So they were like 10, 15 years older than me. They already were in a very different uh, place in their careers. So they first became friends, but then they also became uh, kind of professional mentors to me, uh, whether it was like ju just ad hoc, like whenever I had a quick question or whether, you know, it was more than that. And then when my business, when my, when my marketing business became successful, more and more people, and especially women came to me for advice. And of course, 
I, I loved helping them, but I was also very surprised that they would have to come to me. And also um, it's, it kind of disturbed me because I always thought that my need for advice and my need for, for mentoring and stuff like that came from my unique circumstances. And when I saw that it's women that are also are inside like large organizations, I like thought, hey, but you're surrounded by other people who have knowledge and experience and, and exactly the skills that you, you need around you. How come is it so hard? So that started occupying a lot of my mind in 2015 and eventually I was nagging so many people about it like just kind of picking their brain that one friend told me hey listen maybe just do a survey and get it out of the way and I thought oh that's brilliant I'll do a survey and nobody's going to answer it so, so <laughs> I'll get it out of my system and then I can just go back to my business uh, which was thriving and really needed me at that point right uh, so I did a 30 question long survey for women in the workplace on issues in the workplace, on who did they go to for advice? Is it online? Is it offline? Is it in, is it in their family? Is it in their organization? Uh, what the, do they, like, what's their biggest fear in their careers? Like a lot of questions like that. And to my astonishment, really, within a week, uh, more than 500 women from 56 countries took the survey and tens of them sent me personal messages with their personal stories. So you knew then that you were on to something, I guess, but the question is really what? Uh, that was a huge question. I had no idea. I had a lot of thoughts, but also, first of all, I didn't know what, because it's something, but it's very wide. You know, women, careers, work, like there's so many things that you could do with that. And also, I had an inkling that it would be a product that would be like an app or something like that, but I had no idea how to, how, you know, I, I, by that time I had some experience in building businesses that are around services, around providing services like, you know, like uh, marketing. And I dipped my toe into doing other things like, you know, throwing events because I, or, or building e-commerce sites because I was like doing whatever my clients needed me to do. But I had no idea about how, how do you start a product company not only technically how do you think about a product and how you plan it, but also how do you bring, how do you build a, uh, a team around it? How do you, you know, when it's a product company, you, you, you'll eventually manage people who do things that you'll never know how to do. Like by that time I was managing people, but people who did things that I knew how to do and I only needed them to scale me. So they would like resize photos or they would like write captions for, for, you know, for Facebook or for Twitter. But if I build a product company, I'll need to manage people who are developers, people who are designers, like a lot of things that I, I don't know how to do. How do you manage uh, um, a team when you don't, when you can't do their job at all? And of course you can't do their job better than them. So uh, that was, that led me to a very, very confusing year and a half where I did a lot of failing, failing forward, as they say. So really trying to think, is it a women to women direct-to-consumer app? Is it an app inside organizations? So a lot of things around that. And I did manage to catch the attention of one of uh, Israel's biggest companies that said, hey, we'll do something with you. And with that kind of letter of interest, uh, I managed to get into an amazing program called Comatech, which is uh, the first accelerator for Haredi entrepreneurs. And by that time, I was lucky enough to convince my co-founder, Hanit, to join me. Again, we weren't sure, join me doing what? But <laughs> right. Join me and building something in that world. 
And I think the best thing that we did do that year was just meeting a lot of people and learning from them and doing a lot of research. And we learned that we hit a nerve and that's, you know, there's a thing called future of work because the world of work is changing both when it comes to the needs of employees and how we as employees, especially millennials, but not only um, prioritize learning and professional development over things that, you know, over stability and other things. And on the other hand, how organizations on the one hand are forced to really grow rapidly or die. Uh, so they need more and more employees. On the other hand, they're facing more and more employee attrition because people, if they don't have the opportunities and the access to what they now prioritize, will just quit. So that was a huge learning curve. And at the end of 2016, after like being through the Cognitech program, meeting a lot of people, doing a lot of experimentation, building the first iteration of like a, of, a, of an app, uh, we understood that what we actually want to build is what emerges is now an internal solution for employees helping them no matter, you know, no matter their background, their location, their seniority, their experience, helping them find the most relevant people inside their organization who they can learn from right now, uh, whether it's through a quick advice session or shadowing session where, where I can learn by, for example, uh, observing what you do, how you do your work. And then on the other hand, helping the organization scale the knowledge inside the organization, make their employees happier because they have more access to opportunities and to growth, but also give them anonymized aggregated data that helps them become better because they understand what are the needs of the employees. So I want to get a little bit more on Emerge, but I want to understand first, what exactly was Comatech? Who founded it? Where did it come from? And what were you actually pitching them? Because it sounds like you didn't have any actual idea. You just had some interesting experiences connecting yeah. with women. So I think the problem was not that I didn't have an idea. It was that I had too many ideas. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we did have, so we did have, we did have like an Android app. Don't ask me why we started as an Android. It makes no sense. Because that's Israelis so use Android. Android. That's why. <laughs> yeah. That's the developer I had access to. It was great. But you know, uh, we had an Android app that was built as a B2C app, so a direct-to-consumer app where women, like kind of a marketplace where women, professional women will help other women uh, when they have any need when it comes to career or to work. And we already went with that. As I said, I had a lot of conversations with people. So we already went with that to Strauss, which is one of the biggest companies, like a dairy company in Israel. And they said, we're definitely interested in doing something. They weren't sure if they wanted to do it inside the organization or actually for some nonprofits uh, that they do supporting uh, independent women. So we did have a product. Uh, it wasn't the right product, but we did have a product and we did have already kind of a vote of confidence from a very large organization. So the funny thing was when I had conversations with people uh, in the tech world, because I didn't know a lot of people in the tech world, it made a lot of difference if they had already met someone called Moishi Friedman before. And I didn't know Moishi, but they told me, you know, I walk into the room and in Israel, it's very, you know, walk, you walk into the room as a Haredi person, you'll get a reaction. So I really saw a difference when it was people who were saying, telling me, hey, you know, we also met this guy called Moishi Friedman and you should talk to him because he started this organization called Kamatech. And mm -hmm. Moishi started it because he was an entrepreneur who also, as Haredi didn't have the network, didn't have, you know, a cousin who made a huge exit uh, in right. company. 
and he started this organization where the first thing they did was just helping Haredi people in training and in um, finding jobs in the high-tech sector. But then they built an accelerator that would choose like every year around 10 Haredi entrepreneurs and kind of incubated them inside larger companies. So because they didn't have space, they would put like, we, for example, sat inside Microsoft for six months. And then we didn't only have the space, but we also had kind of the mentorship of people in Microsoft. Uh, we got an idea about how it is to interact with the tech world. Uh, so it gave us a lot of other benefits. And while we were doing that, uh, once a week, we would have like sessions with investors or with other experts in the startup world uh, via Comatech. And at the end of the six months or so that the program ran, uh, we had a demo day really pitching to investors in Israel and then also in New York and in the Silicon Valley. Uh, and, and I think we also got, got like a small, like a $5,000 grant, which was huge for us back then. Uh, so that was very pivotal to us, even though while we were inside the program, we learned that most of what we were doing and the way we were thinking about things was, was wrong. And eventually we actually actually started the company. We actually started Emerge uh, just in between finishing the program and demo days. <laughs> so <laughs> demo days we were pitching something completely new. Uh, but it was based on all the things that we learned while doing the program. And we're still very involved with Comatech. I really believe in their mission. And actually, they also eventually started a micro VC fund uh, that also uh, invested in Emerge. So what exactly does Emerge do? You said it's a, a way of optimizing uh, employee satisfaction and, and professional development. Is it basically like a kind of a, a glorified chat room within a company where you can you know, reach out to colleagues to pick their brains about different topics. What is its core function? Yeah, almost. So the core function is really helping you as an employee get access to better learning and professional development as an individual. And technically the way that we do it is we have an internal app inside every organization and we, we work, I, I can't really name most of the organizations that we work with, but we work with Fortune 500 companies as well as high growth. Uh, tech companies, but as an employee, you'll just go into the internal app and we'll help you with the discovery. So first of all, you'll just type in a question that nobody, it's completely confidential, nobody will see it, or you'll type in like the, the topics that you want to learn about and we'll find you, we'll help you with discovering who are the best people inside the organization who have that knowledge, experience, or skills. And then you'll be even, even able to filter them by you know the perspective that you want right now do you want to ask someone a question and it could be via chat or just copying on a zoom call for five minutes or more uh, or do you actually want to learn by observing them do they want to like uh, uh, join someone's sales meeting and see how they do sales and, and kind of shadow them um, and then you can immediately just schedule directly on their calendar because people who are there are people who already are up to contributing their time and we make it easier for them to do so, to give back on their own terms. So they will only show up on the availability that they define only on the topics that they define, et cetera. So you could say that it's a glorified discovery tool, but then also the, the other big like part is that you already like really streamline the actual connection. So you, you don't feel bad like, oh, am I nagging this person? Is this a good time? Like you all already know that this is a good time. This is a person who would love to help you. And you can just jump on their, like their, their open uh, time slots on their calendar. It's very streamlined. You'll get like a calendar invite with the link already, etc. 
then on the organization side, you know, beyond really helping the employees with all the benefits that come uh, to the organization from that, like employee retention, productivity, engagement, stuff like that, they also get like very powerful data, which it's very important to stress that it's private, it's anonymous and aggregated. So we're very, very passionate about privacy, uh, but they can't trace it back to any one employee, but they can see what are the biggest issues inside the organization and also what's the supply and demand are, are like a lot of people interested in learning more about blockchain and we have like no one or just one person who offers uh, that inside their, their organization that means that maybe we should bring it into like our hr or learning plan for the next quarter uh and stuff like that and we really see like very powerful things happening like 90 percent of our connections are cross-function or cross-location so people, people are really connecting beyond their immediate circles and kind of breaking the silos, especially in international organizations, that's super important. Um, and also that uh, negative Glassdoor reviews are going down when people are using Emerge because they're just feeling that they could uh, get help and get advice inside the organization so they don't have to be frustrated and air it outside. So it's been, it's been great. We've just been implemented in companies for over a little bit over a year. And we're now starting with a new batch of clients and super, super, super exciting to see it actually touching actual lives. So it sounds like you do a lot of traveling. As you uh, said, you live in B'nai Brock, <laughs> but uh, we're yeah. talking about New York. And you said that the last few weeks you were in San Francisco, AKA Silicon Valley. So <laughs> what's your like day to day and where are you kind of uh, in your typical life? What, what are you doing on, on a regular basis? Yeah, so when I'm in Israel, our team is in uh, Tel Aviv. We have a small uh, office there, and we'll do a, a lot about, uh, have to do a lot about the product, uh, the R&D. Uh, you know, remember when we spoke about managing people yes. <laughs> who do things that I don't do? So I, I'm very lucky to have an amazing co-founder who, who has over 25 years in the world of software. So... I don't have to manage her, but she's also a great teacher. So I actually, actually understand what she does now, even though I can't do it. Uh, so we have a lot of conversations, a lot of meetings around product when we're in Israel, mostly. And then I spend between 50 and, you know, 70% of my time traveling uh, for sales and for raising money. Uh, we're actually kicking off another fundraising round right now. And then my day-to-day in Silicon Valley or in New York would be a lot about uh, meeting decision makers in HR and learning in both high growth companies, 1,000 to 5,000 employees and in in corporates and uh, meeting with investors and also meeting with people who could be collaborators. Uh, The the landscape of future of work and future of work solutions is really thriving and it's amazing to see where it's going in the last three years. It's not easy to travel so much, <laughs> but, um, but I'm very lucky. I have an amazing support system in my family. Yeah, so um, I was going to ask you, how does it work with your family? And, and that's a very unusual, you know, even for a, a woman who's working or working, yeah. lot, that's still quite unusual. Yeah, so, so my family is amazing. Uh, first of all, my husband and, and my son, but then also my parents and, and, you know, the extended family. And they're very proud of what I do. In fact, my mother joined me to a few exhibitions and trade shows that we did when I needed <laughs> more hands on deck, uh, which was an amazing, like a great bonding experience. Like think about it, going with your parents to sell to companies. So they're amazing. It's definitely not easy for me or for them. 
but I try, I try to really consolidate my trips and go like this time, like for three weeks at a time rather than going for five days. And then another five days, I find that somehow maybe counterintuitively it's, it's easier for us. And last year I took my son on one of my trips, but it's, it's definitely a challenge. It helps that I have a lot of family here uh, in the East Coast. And my, my brother just moved to, to the West Coast, uh, to, to LA. So hopefully in one of, of the next trips, I'll get to hang out with him and his wife a little bit. Uh, but it's, it's definitely a challenge, uh, I won't lie. Uh, but it's, it's a necessity. We're building out uh, the team here in the US. Very classically for an Israeli startup, we're always planning on having the R&D, the technological team in Israel, but uh, having the sales and marketing functions more here in the U.S., closer to the to the, the actual market. So hopefully, the team here grows. Uh, I'll be able to find a balance with the travel. How do you think that you are perceived within the larger community that you live in? You know, within the Haredi world. I imagine that you sounds like you've kept your family stayed within the Haredi world. Yeah. So how do you think yeah, that you're, you're so. viewed there? So this is an interesting question. I, I'm very curious uh, to, to know if anyone knows the answer. Uh, I, I, I do think that I kind of educated my environment to expect weird things out of me. So this is not the first weird things that I've done. You know, I wrote in secular magazines that have a model on the cover. I've done like a lot of, I, I still remember uh, after I got my first gig translating subtitles for TV, uh, one of my grandmother was was like bragging about it in a family wedding, and the other grandmother was like shushing her because it's TV. Uh, so, so I did I, I did like educate my environment to expect weird things out of me, and somehow they still accept me. Um, I did have a lot of uh, two years ago. I, I was at the same week. It was just before Rosh Hashanah, and I was at the same week in two, on the two of the, the prominent you know financial papers in Israel, Globes and Kalkalis. They both have like uh, projects of like women of the year in tech or women of the year in business. And somehow I ended up being on both. Uh, and that was, you know, first of all, like a surreal experience, but also I was like saying, Oh, like, I wonder how people will, would react. And I was so surprised and delighted because I got to Shul and Rosh Hashanah and people came to me with tears in their eyes, like saying, wow, you're doing so much Kiddush Hashem. And that was a huge realization because I also didn't want to be on those papers. But then when I thought about it, I thought about like, as a kid, I would have loved to have a role model like that, both for kids in our community, not saying that I'm necessarily the best role model, but that they have someone who's in that function, I think is, is very good. And also actually for people outside our community, because I frankly find it harder in Israel in the secular world, uh, you go into a room and people have a lot of different expectations from you as a Haredi person, especially as a Haredi woman. Uh, actually, I think for men it might be even harder, but you know, like uh, nevertheless, as, as a Haredi person, and it's very charged, it can be very charged. Uh, so some people, it's more charged, and some people are like actually um, like really happy that they're finally meeting, you know, Haredi person in a capacity like that. But there's a lot of stigma. So I think it's, it's also important to kind of project those kind of personas out there, uh, not only for us, but also for, for the way that we then need to, to deal with how we're stigmatized elsewhere. To the point that I find it easier during business. 
outside of Israel a lot of times. Interesting. Do you think that the Haredi world itself is changing now, you know, with, with more people going to work and so forth? And uh, is that something you're, you're hoping to become a role model for women in that world? So I do think the Haredi world is changing. I think one of the biggest changes, uh, positive changes, uh, was around 15 or 20 years ago when they brought more higher education possibilities to the Haredi world. So with like separated classes, but with real university degrees, that's what allowed my mom, who's an amazing powerhouse nowadays, to, to go back to school, for example. And, and that's how my sisters are, are going to college nowadays. Like, I don't think a few years uh, before we had that possibility. So I think that was a huge catalyzator for change. And I think there's more and more change in that world. I do think like anything that has to do with change, the world kind of balances itself. So there's more openness, but then of course there's also more like the extremes will always like get more extreme. But I'm loving what I'm seeing. And also I think that it's a necessity because if we continue on telling girls that they they, they really have to value and, and to marry guys who, who study Torah their entire lives, how will they be a breadwinner? Like there's only so many jobs in teaching, right? I know because my, my mother-in-law has been a teacher for years. She actually taught in seminary and she was trying to, to help find her students, help find jobs. And, and there's, there's not many. And there's so, so many girls graduating from, from you know, uh, teaching seminaries and stuff like that. So, so I think it's a necessity. I think it's happening. I do think that it makes some people uncomfortable. And so uh, that's why the extremes will always like, become more extreme while, while the middle opens up a little bit. When it comes to being a role model, I think I'm a role model w- whether I, I like it or not, just because I'm one of the first Haredi entrepreneurs, especially Haredi women entrepreneurs. So in the beginning, I, had, I wasn't that comfortable with that. And I was like, hey, but I'm not, I'm not there yet. I'm not that advanced. I'm not that successful yet. But then I understood that no matter what, I will be put in that position. So I better do something good with that. And I try, uh, I really try. I try to be there for both. Uh, Haredi entrepreneurs, especially women, who are starting out. And I also try to project that image so, so people outside our community can understand that it's possible that, you know, being Haredi and being a professional and being in tech world aren't mutually exclusive. Who are your role models now? Who do you look to today to help you get through a difficult time or a complicated situation? Wow. So in the spiritual and personal uh, sense, definitely my husband and my parents always uh, there, I met a lot of amazing people. I had a, a lot of luck, really, meeting with uh, with tech leaders. But still, I feel my parents and my husband are the best people out there. Uh, and uh, I do surround myself with people like just like our our product suggests. Like I really think learning from other people is the best way to go, not only with your career but with your life. So I surround myself with amazing people. Some of them are my investors. Shira Ronen, who's uh, an executive coach and an investor in the Silicon Valley. Fiona Delamon, who's uh, one of the, unfortunately, few uh, women uh, in Israeli VC, uh, who's also invested in us uh, privately. Hadisa um, Feltani, the general manager of Facebook in Israel, is an amazing mentor and, and champion for us. And I learned from them. And a lot of friends who are going through similar things. And I think it's, it's very important to have your champions and your mentors, but also people who are in a similar stage to you where you can commiserate and kind of exchange tips and support each other. Finally, what, what are your plans with your company now? What's the next 
step for you guys? Is it is the goal to have an exit? Is the goal to ride this <laughs> as long as possible? What's the uh, idea? So the goal is to build something meaningful that really disrupts both on the tech side, but also disrupts the way that learning uh, in organizations is working right now and helps both people and organizations. And whether that goes through an exit or that goes through an IPO, I don't know, it's very early days to, to know that, but we want to build something meaningful and sustainable. For us, the next steps towards that goal are now going on our next fundraising round and starting with a new batch of clients, which we're very excited about. A few of them are Fortune 500 companies, as I said, and a few of them are, are more like high growth companies that are facing different challenges and like growing rapidly across locations and departments. And we have very, very exciting things ahead of us also on the technological side, which I grew to, to love and to be fascinated by because, as I said, I'm, I'm a really geek. You're a nerd. <laughs> I'm a nerd. I'm a nerd. So I love it. Uh, and I feel just very, very lucky to be working alongside my team and especially my co-founder who I, who I learn from every day and to bring this into the lives of a lot of people, as many people as possible. Incredible. Chadva, you might be a nerd, but you're also a uh... A great Kiddush Hashem, in my opinion, at least. Someone who's uh, bringing wonderful values and a wonderful spirit to the broader world. And I'm so grateful that you shared your story with us. Kadva Kleinhandler, thank you so, so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This has been fun. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash JewsYouShouldKnow. Finally, If you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.